Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we are doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Alicia Garza. And I'm Ai-Jen Poo, and today we have a legend on Sunstorm, and I am not exaggerating. No, you are not exaggerating. Margaret Cho is everything. She is a comedian, an actress, an activist, an author, and is groundbreaking in so many ways. The new season of her podcast, The Margaret Cho, is exploring the anti-Asian violence and model minority myth. She is the subject of the comedy documentary Hysterical. And coming soon, you'll be able to catch her starring in the rom-com Good on Paper on Netflix. Margaret Cho, hello, what's up? Hello, thank you. We're so stoked to have you, Margaret. This is like a dream for us. And honestly, you know, it's rare that I get to meet people these days who are Bay Area natives, San Francisco natives in particular. So I got to just give you props for that. I just do. I just do. That's it amazing. Means a lot to me. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you for receiving it. I receive them. You have made us laugh so much over the years. So please, thank you. Tell us what is keeping you laughing now. I really love to watch old Key and Peel on YouTube. <laughs> like I watch the Church Ladies like so much. Uh huh. I think it's just oh god, it like really gets me and. I really laugh at Bowen Yang on SNL. I mean, I laugh at Bowen Yang anyway, but I love him on SNL. I just really, really laugh. And it's very satisfying. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you could make other people laugh? I don't know if I really ever knew, but I uh, really always loved comedy. I loved sitcoms and I loved television. I loved... Carol Burnett and Flip Wilson and Paul Lind and all of those sort of game show queens. And then I loved um, the gong show. And I just loved like the idea of show business. A lot of ways it was sort of my babysitter. So I, I watched a lot of SCTV, a lot of kids in the hall. So comedy was sort of my love language anyway. I never was sure if I could do it, but I, I just knew that I wanted to. Totally. My grandmother used to say that if you laughed three times a day, like one of those deep belly laughs, that you would like <laughs> live a super long, healthy life and then one day just drop dead. And that's ex exactly how you want to live your life. So under her theory, you have kept so many people healthy. <laughs> well, laughter is a sharp intake of breath that's unexpected that guarantees you'll be alive for the next breath. So... There's a, a way to sort of look at life as a, a life, mm -hmm. like laughing is affirming your life status. So, you That's know, right. it's I true. I live by those words. It's a constant, it's a reminder that you are alive. Yeah. One of the things we admire the most about you is your courage, your fearlessness, and your willingness to just try new things. And it feels like you've just done it all. Stand up, yeah. books, TV, movies, burlesque, <laughs> activism, podcasts. Is there something that you haven't yet tried that you would like to? I would love to start to do um, 
animation, more animation. I've done some. My animated movie last year was nominated for an Academy Award over the moon. And to be a part of animation, such a magical world and such an important world too. And it really is your ability to tell stories in a way that's really moving and funny and relatable, almost without language. It's really um, powerful. So this year I'm one of in the jury for the Tribeca Film Festival, and I'm doing all of the um, animation. To me, it's something that really speaks to people of all ages. And um, so it's something that I would like to do more of. I love that. You know, it is Pride Month. And mm. I, as a fellow bi-human, bi to bi, yeah, shake it out. <laughs> yeah. want to know, you know, what are you celebrating this Pride Month? I'm celebrating our reach and our endurance. You know, we've had um, our second Pride now in um, COVID. And a lot of this is going to be virtual, but there's still this resilience and perseverance around our community. We're still going to have it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter. And last year, I hosted the first ever mm. virtual Folsom Street Fair. Awesome. Which was amazing. So that was actually a kind of a great opportunity because you could see everything. Usually, if you go to Folsom, you're only able to see part of it because everything's mm-hmm. happening at the same time. But mm-hmm. since this was online, I was able to see the entire program of events, and mm. I was so impressed. That's awesome. The way that our community has rallied around this, we've already been through a pandemic with AIDS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know how to live in a time of death and disease and thrive in a time of death and disease. So pride is really an important time, and we embrace it this year just as strongly as if we were all physically together. I love this. You know, I used to live right by Folsom Street, mm. and it, I know <laughs> it often meant that I was like walking out my front door, and you know, somebody was getting head, and I'd be like, "Happy Ooh. Folsom Street Fair!" So <laughs> As great, I'm, like crawling over somebody. Um, you know, what I mean? but I can't imagine it virtual. So awesome. I mean, it. It's like because everybody who would have been there. We're um, streaming now live or sending in uh, videos of their play. That's amazing. And it was amazing just to see what the kids are up to these days. It's not your <laughs> not your your leather daddy's S and M. Boy, times have changed. <laughs> and for the better. It's great. Lots of um, not using leather. They're using a lot of plant material like cactus and succulents. So oh. it was a lot of cruelty free. That is so interesting. You're going organic. I'm into it. So organic. (laughs) I'm into it. (laughs) Plant-based. Plant-based. Plant-based S&M. This is amazing. So good. (laughs) So we got to dive in because there's so much to talk about. And speaking of resilience, we are certainly practicing our resilience and we are standing up we are fighting back and we are changing not just narratives, but we're changing policy. And I know that you have been super, super vocal um, about anti-Asian sentiment increasing. You've also been very, very vocal about LGBTQ rights, especially in the 52 years since Stonewall. And I was saying to somebody the other day, I totally get why people were throwing bricks because what is going on with these folks? What? uh, Yeah. Anywho. So I guess my question for you is, you know, 
Why do you think that some people's fear, right? Because that's what a lot of this is about. It's about fear. It's about anxiety, right? This isn't totally about mean people, which is always how it gets framed. It's about fear and anxiety, and it's about opportunism, right, that preys on that fear and anxiety. Why do you think that some people's fear, particularly fear of sickness, manifests as hate? And what are some ways that this can change? Well, it reminds me a lot of uh, during AIDS, where a lot of people were lashing out at the gay community, and it would manifest in homophobic violence using AIDS as some kind of excuse. So if you're so afraid of a disease that is bloodborne, why would you go splatter the blood of someone who you believe has it? In the same mm-hmm. way that with coronavirus, if you believe that a group of people have it, have brought it to America, why would you get in their face and yell like, mm-hmm. knowing that that's how it's spread? <laughs> okay. So it's not, it ha- you know, these things happen not because of people's real fear of a disease or or anything like that. It's just a justification to put actions to their already resident hatred. Mm-hmm. You know, something that already resides within them that they want to be able to use against others. Mm-hmm. And so this is like, it, it, it's, it's cyclical, this pattern of violence against all of these people who would be considered the other, whether it's queerness, whether it's Asianness, whether it's race, whatever it is, it's this unnameable fear. So one of the things that I am so excited about that is happening right now is the second season of your podcast, The Margaret Cho, Mortal Minority, which looks at incidences of anti-Asian violence in the past. And these stories are so, so important and so few people know about them. It's insane. It's so weird. It's so hard to find out about a lot of these violent uprisings because America wants to rewrite their history. Like, we don't know anything about the lynching of Black Americans. We think, oh, it was a few isolated incidents. No, this was a systemic practice in keeping Black people from attaining status and economic status, wealth. Like, they would go after um, people who were prominent in the communities, people who were standing up to lead. Anybody who was showing some kind of exceptional worth in the black community, they would lynch. And we don't have any awareness of that. Exactly. There's a way in which until you understand that history, you don't really understand our culture and the roots of our systems and how racism and white supremacy shapes them. And I think what you're helping to do here is fill out a part of the story that's about the experience of Asian Americans in this country. And I'm just curious, what are you learning and what are you hoping that listeners will learn and take away from the show? I'm just learning how much of America's racist history is buried underneath um, the founding fathers, 
underneath these sort of revolutionary war tales, they gloss over slavery. They gloss over all of the violence against Chinese workers here in this country initially. They gloss over the destruction of over 200 Chinatowns in America, completely erase all of Asian Americans' contributions to reuniting the country after the Civil War. And it's a real disservice to who we are as a nation because we're so much more than people understand. And also the pain of all the things that we've experienced. And, you know, with lynching, that's something that we're just starting to finally understand. Systemic racism, we're just starting to understand. And so Asian American racism is behind that, starting to come into visibility. And it's very painful and very hard to find truth about it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things, even in my own family, when I talk about facing into the truth of our history, the parts that are the most painful, the most dehumanizing, the most shocking and unfathomable, there's even differences within my own family of like, why do you have to go there? Why do you have to, why do you have to talk about that stuff? Why can't we just move forward and move on? And what would you say to those people? Why do we need to face into this history? Well, we um, don't do ourselves any favors by moving forward because we don't know where we're, we're coming from. And we'll just continue these patterns. And we have to have a reckoning now. We have to have a reckoning with white supremacy and really dismantle it. And um, it's, to me, a a real uh, burden for white people, actually, too, because they feel shame about things that they were never a part of, yet still propagate because they refuse to look at the past as well. So we all need to look at it so that we can all have a better society and understand each other. You know, this season of Sunstorm, it's all about learning and unlearning. And I'm curious because you had an excellent mentor, the late, great Joan Rivers. What is the most important thing that you learned from her? I think what I learned from Joan Rivers is that she emphasized the fact of uh, my worth as a female comedian was only going to get bigger and better as I grew older, and that it was the opposite of actresses, especially her from her day, uh, ingenues whose luck would fade when they went into their 30s. To even think of that now is really astonishing, but she uh, persevered and thrived into her uh, old age. And so I was so grateful to have her in my mm-hmm. life and to have her uh, be mm-hmm. so encouraging and supportive of me. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in such a weird moment right now in terms of this pandemic. It's like, I feel like for the last year I've been saying, contrary to popular opinion, we are still in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, wait, are we in a pandemic? Are we not in a pandemic? People are out. People are getting vaccinated. Some people are masked, some people are not. I mean, there's progress that's happening. 
But this has certainly been a year and a half now of lots of learning and lots of unlearning and lots of reckoning. So I'm curious, from your perspective and your experience, is there one thing that you've learned in this pandemic that you hope to carry forward with you? Because we're not going back to any like mythical time, right? Like no. 2019 is never coming back again. We're never going to get January of 2020 again, right? Mm-mm. The world has changed. So is yes. there one thing from this period that you are going to take forward with you? And is there something that you are absolutely, absolutely leaving behind? I think that I am coming forward with a sense of real gratitude and this uh, leaving behind kind of being jaded by life or sort of the the small, beautiful joys like going to the movies or going out to a restaurant. I, I think that that's really something that I would take for granted and I can't take that for granted anymore, that kind of freedom. But also I think we still are in a pandemic is that I, I'm going to mask, I'm vaccinated and maxed because we don't know how uh, this is going to change. You know, I don't know how many people are vaccinated who may have to get booster shots. Who knows what's going to happen with the efficacy of these vaccines? Mm -hmm. We're just all learning. But uh, I'm really excited about going back to a life that I won't take for granted. I love that. Yeah, I think gratitude is such an incredible, magical power that when you feel it, and you allow it to kind of sink in and dominate your consciousness, everything is better. Like you feel better, you are better, you look better. I feel like Joan Mm -hmm. Rivers must have lived with the spirit of gratitude. Yes, I think so. She really knew it because she's seen um, so much and seen comedy change and attitudes towards women in comedy change. She was one of the prime reasons why attitudes towards women in comedy changed. So I know that she had tremendous gratitude for everything that she had built as well. So it's, yeah, something she definitely had. Speaking of comedy and changing, I mean, you've had four years of Trump, which was a lot of material, (laughs) a lot of material. (laughs) And I wonder what changes for you as a comedian and for comedy in general now that we're kind of in a new era? Oh, so much changes. And, And also that people still believe in him. All of the death and destruction that he caused, yet still somehow people believe in him. And that is the power of whiteness. That's the power of fear-based propaganda. It is the fear of the other. It's the same narrative of they're taking our jobs. We've got to do something about it. They're bringing us diseases. This kind of mentality, it goes so deep. So it just uncovers how deeply racist a country this really is and how gullible people are that they actually think progressives are eating babies. And Mm. in all of this craziness, the damage that he's done to the Supreme Court, which truly Mm, affects mm. women in the worst way. That's That's right. The worst crime, I think, that we'll be reeling from for the next 50 years, I believe. That's the part mm-hmm. of it that really scares me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Especially because, as we talked about, right, if we don't talk about what's happened, 
if we don't talk about what we've endured over the last four years and what the impacts were, right, then we are absolutely doomed to repeat it. We're so doomed. And and it's so awful to think about having to um, go back to Roe v. Wade, which they will do, which they are doing, as if we need mm-hmm. to assess again whether women are are in charge of their bodies. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Which obviously Brett Kavanaugh, we know he doesn't believe that women are in charge of their bodies. He doesn't. So it's really frightening. Well, let's talk about the ways that we get resilient in these moments, because if you're like me, you know, you spend half your day doing deep belly laughs, right? Because we, I, I uh-huh. seek them out. I seek them out. I, I feel like it's the secret to good skin. But then you also spend the other half of your day like throwing your shoes at the television because there's a lot of work to do. So, you know, a lot of us take care of ourselves by kind of zooming in on the things that make us passionate. And you have said that you self-medicate through performing because it's a way to combat anxiety and depression. So how have you been coping um, with the loss of like live performance over the past year and a half? It's hard because you feel like you've lost your purpose, but I've been lucky in that I've done a lot of events online. I've done a lot of things streaming and on social media, which have really helped. And um, I've also taken the time to do a lot of episodes of Mm -hmm. podcasts, uh, my own and other people's, which is really great. The... um, yeah, the, the way that I think I can channel my anxiety into action, it's like gold. It's like you can make gold it, it, because it's really um, a noble mm-hmm. effort. You know, like I want to be afraid, but I also want to try to do something to help. And so when you can try to figure out how to do that, it, it's really powerful. Yeah, that is powerful, especially because performing gives me anxiety and depression (laughs) as opposed to alleviating it. Um, So just even the idea that I could try to get to a place like you, Margaret, where it could give me some reprieve from anxiety seems awesome. And it sounds like it's also about more than just performance. It's about action for you. It's about like being in motion, being a part of the solution, solving problems. Yeah. And speaking your mind, like during the um, Biden-Harris campaign, I was so afraid Mm. that Trump was going to be reelected. And so I spent all of my time doing a lot of advocacy work and reaching out to AAPI political groups. And it was really interesting because a lot of Republicans joined us, people who had voted for Trump who were coming to the Democrat side because he just went too far and we couldn't support it anymore. And I was so Mm. impressed by their rationality and humility to come. So they were the ones that I Mm -hmm. focused the most Mm. on. I was so Mm. impressed. I think that that's really smart and beautiful because I think sometimes it's kind of like when you're doing a thing and you've been doing it for a long time and people don't get it. And then all of a sudden they get it. And you're like, well, where have you been all my, Mm -hmm. you know, like where you could have the posture of what Mm -hmm. took you so long in a kind of like negative, distrustful way, or you could have a like, welcome. Mm -hmm. And we're so happy Mm -hmm. you're here posture. And I think that getting to this next phase in our democracy and in our country's well-being is going to require all of us being like, 
welcome. We're so happy to see you. We have to. Let, you know, let's eat this baby. Because, I mean, it's like, I, I, I really could not believe some of these people, but they were, you know, of that era. Sometimes there's immigrants who really buy into that white aspirational dream. And they want to um, send their kids to Ivy League schools. And they believe that being fully integrated into American society means trying to be as white as possible, which means being Republican a lot of times. Being politically conservative somehow is the answer to that. And, you know, the fact that they were so fed up by Trump, they realized they couldn't do it through that party. And that's so Mm -hmm. impressive. I really like that. I really like that. And I feel like, you know, one of the things that strikes me too about what happens when people really follow their moral compass is that they also are trying to figure out, they're trying to find their way, but they're also trying to figure out if they can stay in the fight. And you have been in this work for a long time, not just in the work of comedy, right? But in the work of being active and raising your voice. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about like, what are your survival tips? Like, how do you stay in it? Even though things get chaotic and, you know, sometimes we throw shoes at the TV, at least I do, maybe that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> how do you stay well, it's in? It's a good thing to throw. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's really hard. It's really frustrating, especially with so many Asian American elders being attacked. And it's not just a daily thing. It's multiple mm-hmm. times a day where you see these stories and it's so disheartening. I mean, especially from the Bay Area, yeah. which is really awful to think about, but it's a very uh, distressing thing. Yeah. But we have to have hope. What this violence has done is really brought the Asian American community together along with our allies and brought some of a unified voice, which I think is what we needed. We we still don't have whoever is going to be our John Lewis. So we have to figure that out. But most importantly, we do have this collective voice of this is enough, this has to stop. And I'm I'm grateful for that. But it's very hard to see all these stories and not feel Mm -hmm. disheartened. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that um, you just made me think of that uh, I think is just the opportunity of this moment is how many Asian American women and their leadership, Mm -hmm. right, who in the community has been transformative. The fact that we have a new platform for organizing and building power out of the pain of this moment and the the devastation of the violence that's happening. The fact that we have a lot of people working at the community level and voices everywhere, including yours in comedy and in media, and that this is actually about racism that is deeply embedded in our systems and in our culture and that has made us both highly visible and exotic and invisible at the same time, and how it's a reflection of power, how it means that Asian American communities actually have to build power if we're to really address it, and all of that really coming from women. It's incredible. It's great. I mean, we have people like Grace Meng. We have, of course, Kamala Harris, who is amazing. Lisa mm-hmm. Ling, Dion Lim in the Bay Area, whose reporting is so essential for all that's happening to the moment. You know, Olivia Munn is out there. You know, we have so many great Asian American women 
out there really championing our truth. And it's, it's powerful. Yeah. And I think the more we come together and the more power we build, the more we can shift both the narrative and the culture and yes. the power dynamics. Yes. Right? Absolutely. It's exciting. Yeah. Really exciting time. It is. We loved having you, Margaret. Please tell the folks who are listening how they can find you on the socials and where they can catch all of your new work. I'm at Margaret Cho on Twitter, at Margaret underscore Cho on Instagram. Um, My podcast is The Margaret Cho, Mortal Minority. It's out everywhere you get podcasts. You can find out about me and where I'm playing at margaretcho.com. And uh, we're out here. We're doing this. We're doing this. Consider it done. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, and Christina Mevzapgar. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Shelby Sandlin, Mary Philip Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. It's my favorite show. All American with a heel. All American with a heel.